Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Uh, what are we talking about, Sarah? We are talking about Pump Up the Volume with our friend Zoe, a movie whose impact I knew was giant but didn't understand before seeing it for the first time to do this show. What did you know about Pump Up the Volume before you saw this movie? I assumed it had the song Pump Up the Jam in it, and it really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it has like early VC Boys songs and like punk from the 80s. I love. <laughs> and I guess sitting there like waiting for the Technotronic to start, you know. Hurry up. It's coming to yeah. a close. It's going to happen soon. <laughs> I knew that it had Christian Slater and I knew that like a pensive young man with whom I'd gone out with like a single time in college had done college radio and cared deeply about this movie. Which I think allowed me to correctly triangulate it as a very sincere piece of media that allows itself to be loved by young guys who are too angry to think that they're as sincere as they are. That describes a whole swath of folks. It's the Dead Poet Society for Angry Boys. <laughs> That's perfect. I think that this is the height of his career, of, of the first phase of his career, because he was in, I think, Tales from the Dark Side in the mid 80s. Then mm. he was in Gleaming the Cube, in, which was a huge favorite of mine, a skateboarding movie. Which I've never known what that movie is about. I kind of enjoy that it's still so mysterious to me. Oh my God, Sarah. He has to assemble a posse of his skateboard friends yes. who become vigilantes, one of one of whom is Tony Hawk. Of course. Tony Hawk also does all the stunts as his stand-in. It's phenomenal. I love all these 90s movies about like guys who have to do really cool extreme sports stuff for some <laughs> kind of plot reason. <laughs> then he went on to do Heathers and that was when he was like, oh, it's Christian Slater. And then there was this. And then my absolute favorite, which was the giant in the arena of the type of movie you just described for the type of person you just described, which is True Romance. Yes. Oh, my God. And True Romance is a movie where like I watch it now Obviously, I'm noticing this thing and this thing. This thing's <laughs> problematic. But it's, it's a Tarantino movie, you know. But like the 14-year-old boy who lives inside of me and is honestly most of me loves that movie and never yeah. won't. It's like the unexpurgated dreams of a comic book guy. Oh, man. Yeah. So Christian Slater movies, kind of their own little genre. And like True Romance, Heathers, and Pop Up the Volume are kind of a trilogy of like Christian Slater exploring the role of civil libertarian to actually dangerous face of the frustrated suburban teen boy. <laughs> I just, the seamlessness with which you just bang out theses is intimidating sometimes, it's frankly. You're like, give me a think piece on Christian Slater movies. And I'm like, very well, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> if you just had a, a one line tag to get people to check this movie out, what would it be? Mm, sexually assertive teen girl gets her way. <laughs> this is also as much Samantha Mathis's movie as it is his. Yeah, hell yeah. God, and that makes me wonder about a version of Little Women with Christian Slater in it. She plays his love interest. And like, I think that without her, he would still just be hiding in his basement, not really interacting with anybody, avoiding the implications of, of what his free speech quests are starting in the community. Samantha Mathis's character in this movie, like she's someone who is inconvenient for him and challenges him and is like, pushing him in directions I don't think he would have gone otherwise. You see her every time on screen. You're like, who the fuck is that? She is so great. It's Samantha Mathis, who we haven't mm -hmm. seen in a while, but she is phenomenal in this. Yeah. Yeah. I was glad that we got to do it with someone in Gen X. Yeah. Someone who was there when like Christian Slater was like just newly in bloom. Yeah. And in Zoe's words, not surprisingly, very much with these two, a bioawakening movie. I think The Mummy is the other really big bi-awakening movie we've done to this point. So here's another one. Um, all right. Let's pump up the volume. Yay. Just a couple of quick things before we begin, everybody. Uh, first, You Are Good is a podcast made possible with the support of Knack Factory, which is a commercial and creative content production company based in Portland, Maine, that does work throughout these here United States. If you need video produced, get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. And it's produced with your support. Thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. We have them pretty regularly, like twice a month. 
You can find us also on social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter, You Are Good Pod. If you haven't already, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's something you're able to do. That goes a long way. Do the stars. Uh, leave some words if you can. Hugely helpful. If you don't know this already, we have a playlist that we put out with each of the episodes, just songs that strike us when we think about this movie or a conversation about the movie. That'll be linked in the show notes. This, uh, this should be a good one, all things considered. Uh, another content warning this week. Suicide factors into a plot point in the movie. Pump up the volume if you haven't seen seen it we don't go into a whole lot of detail but it does come up a couple of times because again it factors into the plot of the movie so we just want to give you a heads up if that's not something you feel comfortable with we have lots of other episodes and we try like hell to put content warnings at the front of them when they apply i think that's all you need to know you can find zoe's info in the show notes as well zoe's got a new book called the spectacular you'll be able to find that again at the link in the show notes let's uh let's get into it You ever get the feeling that everything in America is completely fucked up? You know that feeling that the whole country is like one inch away from saying, that's it, forget it. You think about it, everything's polluted. The environment, the government, the schools, you name it. All you nice people living in the middle of America, the beautiful. This is a hard Harry reminding you to eat your cereal with a fork and do your homework in the dark. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. <laughs> I get it. I get it immediately. It's an end joke. You sound like a real hard on. <laughs> Thank you. I sound like an HHH. Yeah, you sure do. What's going on with you? How are you doing over there? I was just telling our guest Zoe, spoiler alert, we have a guest, Ooh. that based on my count that I did in my head, this is day 535 of quarantine for me. Mm. That's a lot of days, man. It really is. How many movies have you watched at that time? Okay, so I, I did a count just based on what I could think of, and I have watched at least 52 new movies that I hadn't seen pre-COVID. Mm. And then if I counted movie, like I've watched the first Wives Club like three times in the past year and a half, for example. Oh, okay. So yeah. So we have like repeats of movies that, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. gotcha. I was going to say like, that doesn't seem like enough, right. but that's not sheer runtime. But this is new to me. And interestingly, half of them are horror movies, which is based on my conviction that if you watch a bad horror movie, you're probably still going to experience something. <laughs> that is the truth um we have a delightful guest who brought us this movie mm -hmm. guest reveal yourself tell us who you are tell us what you do what is your name what is your quest what is your favorite color what of yours should we buy and uh what are we watching my name is zoe whittall I am a novelist and I write for TV and film. And my new book, The Spectacular, is going to be out on September 14th in America. And I chose the movie Pump Up the Volume, a classic in my mind uh, that I used to own on VHS and then DVD and now was very hard to find this time. I love this so much. I'm so glad that you brought it here, Sarah, uh -huh. for The Uninitiated. Yes. What happens in this movie? What's it what, what's it all about? Pump Up the Volume is both the story of a shy teenage boy getting a girlfriend and also becoming an independent radio Christ figure. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wonderful to me that there was a moment in, I would say, late 80s to mid 90s where like the talk radio DJ mm -hmm. is an archetype. And so there's, for example, straight talk with Dolly Parton, talk radio with Eric Bogosian, <laughs> this. Right. <laughs> it's very much like of an ideology that if like you say the right thing and present the right information, everything will finally be okay. <laughs> I know, right? That's a very teenage fantasy. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I feel like this movie is the first real 90s teen movie. Mm. It's a departure from the John Hughes world. Oh, yeah. Yes. 
Because in John Hughes, teenagers are like very crude and sexual, but they have no political consciousness at all. They're just like fucking shallowly in these big Reagan houses. (laughs) The only conflict is class conflict. Like that was his thing. Yeah. And it's also this class conflict that is a little bit hard to take seriously or imagine ever being taken seriously. We're like in pretty in pink. Uh, Molly Ringwald's character is like, I'm really poor. I have a car and my dad can't find work. But we're like, we have a house that we live in and we're doing fine. Like we're not struggling to afford anything. Apparently it's just I'm not Rick. I'm not a yuppie. Yeah, right. In the 80s, people felt like they were having a class struggle because they were like, I'm not rich. Totally. I just can't buy creative clothes off the rack. I have to make them. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, well, this is good for you, Molly. You'll you'll look back on this and and laugh when you're running your boutique. (laughs) Yeah, and I feel like this movie really probably helped create the aesthetic of the 90s movie, too, because it arrived right on time, 1990, just like Queen Victoria dying in like 1899 or 1900 she was like well toodaloo i've been in charge long enough do something else now i would also say that this movie is kind of a companion film to heathers i feel like do you agree with that zoe absolutely okay pump up the volume is about christian slater moving from the east coast to arizona he's doing a reverse the kid from hocus pocus (laughs) and this movie also it has like shades of repo man and so he has moved there because his parents who are mimi kennedy from dharma and greg and some guy (laughs) have moved because his dad got a job as a school administrator so he's a big wig now and so they're living in kind of meaningless sameness tracked housing in this fictional sort of every suburb of Phoenix. And there were a surprising number of 80s movies that also were like, there's something unsavory about suburbia isn't there. (laughs) Totally. And the kids aren't all right. And the kids aren't all right. And they're also audibly complaining and we're ignoring them and then acting all shocked when they have mental health crises. I feel like this movie also does something that other teen movies of the time hint at it in a way that I think is surprisingly sophisticated given how little we did about the issue which is like there's nothing to do Christian Slater at the start of this movie is like there's nothing to do and you feel like he means like existentially in that like grandiose I just discovered nihilism way but also in the sense of like right there's nothing to do like there's no public spaces (laughs) for you to congregate with fellow teens in the school's like bragging about it allowing you to dance like at lunch. Yeah. And he's like, I can't drive. And if I could, I could like go to the mall and smoke a joint and get stupid. And so his alternative is to start a pirate radio station in his basement where the theme song to his show is Everybody Knows by Leonard Cohen. And when he first started playing that, I was like, OK, I am like fully erect. <laughs> absolutely (laughs) oh my god because i was a teen girl who independently loved everybody knows it's a great song like there are just there are teenagers who like have it bad for leonard cohen and teenagers who don't yeah and (laughs) and that's one of the ways to delineate teens it's really funny by the way that 1990 brings this pump up the volume which has everybody knows as like a predominant song natural born killers in 1995 has everybody knows in the future which are like its predominant songs and like and then shrek Mm -hmm. has hallelujah at the end of the decade just leonard cohen's appearances throughout the decade are very funny very funny Well, he gets slowly sort of turned cute over time, which is kind of how his career went, because he started off as this like sex monster. (laughs) And then he became like a monk gradually. He really did. You ever read that poem by Leonard Cohen that goes, I'm a sex monster. I'm a sex monster. I'm a sex monster. And my name is Leonard Cohen. (laughs) No, but that's incredible. Anyway, so he has a pirate radio station in this like wonderfully soundproofed basement. I mean, I know that this neighborhood is shitty, but you got to hand it to whoever built this house. Like they must have been keeping captives down there previously (laughs) because like that, not a sound leaks out of that place, which is especially fortuitous because his radio system is to just play a song real loud and then hold the microphone up (laughs) next to the speaker as far as I can tell. This movie is about him just starting to do this as a means of self-expression 
And if I had seen this as a teenager again, I would have totally identified with his character, I think, because he's someone who is like incredibly shy at school, despite being happy, hairy, hard on, on the radio, who's like this kind of teen existential Howard Stern. Mm. But at school, he like won't talk to anybody. He's like the smoking cowboy in Romy and Michelle's high school reunion, or like me in ninth grade which was like based on like a shyness that I had turned into this philosophy about how everybody sucked. (laughs) (laughs) And so interestingly, the movie is about him having to deal. It's partly about him having to deal with kids at school, really liking and adopting his message, which certainly plays differently in a preschool shooter universe and him having to cope with like popularity and a girl liking him because Samantha Mathis plays a fellow student who's like, I'm going to find out who this guy is. And I really like him. And he's like, oh, no. Samantha Mathis is like, hi, I'm Samantha Mathis and I fuck. (laughs) I know. That's a very slight paraphrase. I love it so much. (laughs) I love it so much. And I feel like she's the first girl I saw in a movie, like a first teen girl in a movie who was just like, I know what I like. I know what I want. I'm going to take my shirt off and not wear a bra and go to a guy's house who's super sexy. Like, that was pretty rad. Yeah. And also, like, she JDs him, right? Because in Heathers, Chris Slater shows up at Winona Ryder's house. They have sex in the yard. In this movie, she shows up at his house and wants to have sex in his yard. Oh, my God. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's a callback. Yeah. And, like, and she crucially is a teen girl character who's, like, acting assertively out of her own sexual desire, which you almost never see. Never. Like, even mm-hmm. if a girl wants someone in a movie... Like, we're still shown him taking the initiative and, like, standing outside her house and stuff. Yeah. That's, like, very much one of the places where we feel the departure from the John Hughes universe. Absolutely. It's like the John Hughes universe. You're like, I like this guy. How do I conspire against the universe to make the guy know and be proactive? And in this one, she's like, I'm going to fuck the DJ. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. And she's like, I know what I want, and I like a guy that has a lizard. Bruce Lizard. (laughs) So good. Exactly. Kind of secondary to that, because we really spend a long time in this movie kind of focusing on how are things progressing socially. And the, the major theme for Mark, who's the DJ's real name, Mark's character and his work, is that also in kind of a companion piece to Heathers, this movie is a lot about teen suicide. Mm. You know, I mean, Heathers is is a movie that I wonder how people feel returning to it now, because I feel like it takes teen suicide is bad, but also here's a lot of jokes about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like this movie introduces it as a plot element, basically has a character who Christian Slater's character, he calls into the show and Christian Slater doesn't talk him out of committing suicide, but also doesn't really try to do that. And my sense of that moment is that it's based on him, like not really feeling all that differently. Mm. And then the end of the movie is kind of him and his final message to people as he's hunted down by the FCC, because he's also exposed to school white conspiracy to expel low achieving students to maintain high SAT scores for the school at large. His last act as he's being dragged away by the feds is to like tell students to live because being a teenager is the worst and it can only get better. And then he encourages his fellow youths to all set up their own radio stations. And then we end with a bunch of teenagers on their own radio stations essentially saying, I'm Radio Rebel. I realized that this movie would just not make sense to today's teenagers in so many ways. I gave a talk about DIY art making about 10 years ago, and I, I tried to talk about this movie. And when I mentioned it was radio, they were like, we don't really get it. It's, you know, it's not their fault that so much of radio is like drive time humor. It's true. <laughs> and also now today, the idea of not having your own voice is so, would probably be so foreign. Mm. Again, this is a movie I only knew by way of its text for such a long time. And there's a write-up on The Ringer about the background of this movie by by Eric Ducker. And the director was inspired by, a, not a friend, but someone they knew who committed suicide in high school. Mm-hmm. 
And that has existed in their head for such a long time. And like, he really clearly wanted to like visit that theme and like in a real way and was never really sure about how to do it. This Mm. was his approach to actually engaging that in a real way, which is so fascinating to me. Like with Heathers, it could talk about suicide in a way that's like very nihilistic, dark humor. But Mm. this movie has so much heart with what it's trying to deal with. It has so much sincerity. There's at least two characters who are gay. One character Mm -hmm. is like not, we don't openly know that he's gay, but like the character Malcolm who dies, supposedly his backstory is that he's supposed to be gay. Mm. And it's just fascinating to see a movie that is like, edgy also be absolutely sincere in its edginess which is something that feels like is missing now totally which also connects with my experience of teenagerhood and what teenagers are like to the extent that i'm still in touch with that which is like they'll say like anything they can to be shocking and they're also like pure heart with just a tiny little bit of breading absolutely i rewatched heathers recently another the nihilism didn't age as well as pump up the volume has Mm. because there Mm. is so much like hopefulness and sincerity at the heart of the story. Which kind of speaks to the idea that we're living in an age of earnestness, which Mm. like I think really secretly we are. Yeah. I think that that's absolutely true that we are living in an age of earnestness and this is the worst time for earnestness. Mm. Particularly as being an American, particularly like as like global authoritarianism is shifting in that direction. Like we are all teenagers at this high school. Yeah, I know. Right. And we're all very earnest with our hearts and our sleeves and trying to figure out how to start. And we're all like, I'm going to start a pirate radio station. That'll change things. (laughs) The second he started talking in the movie, I was like, oh, God, I wasn't just like I was this kid. I'm like, I feel like I'm this kid again. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, no, I'm 100 percent this kid still. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Zoe, tell us about why this was so impactful to you like what you see in it today tell tell us about your relationship with this movie so when I was 13 years old I moved from a farming town like a really working class rural area to a suburb Mm. and we moved in with my grandmother who had bought the house when it was farming and then the suburb had kind of grown up around it and Mm. I had never really interacted with like really wealthy kids before so I was felt really alienated really unpopular really uncool And I was 14 the year the movie came out. And I can't, I don't actually have a strong memory of the first time I watched it, only that as soon as I watched it, I immediately watched it again and again and again. Because I think I really identified with the feeling of being in this monotonous kind of banal place that where Mm -hmm. there was nothing much to do except get fucked up. And the feeling of like your parents being the age that that they always talked about the 60s and how radical they were, which is what what my parents did. And you're like, what happened, man? (laughs) Totally. Like, (laughs) it's, it's so funny now to watch it as an adult the same age as the parents and to see things from their point of view in some ways. And also to look back on how much I identified with the teenagers in the movie and their plight and like, you know, how the authoritarians at school were censorious and kind of right wing and, and how different that is now. Like my lover has a teenage son and he, I don't think would get this movie because all the parents and teachers in his life are like really liberal. Mm. It's kind of funny to think of like what kids rebel against now and what we were rebelling against. And what we were rebelling against, as I see reflected in this movie, seems almost kind of quaint now, like mm. that we we had it pretty good in 1990, you know, in the suburbs, despite like really still emotionally identifying with both the characters. I feel like the Samantha Mathis character, like, as soon as I saw this movie, I began dressing exactly like her. Mm. I had all of those clothes. I listened to the tape over and over until it was worn out. Like that was the first time I ever heard the Pixies, you mm. know, which became greatly influential to me. Like it's such a t- beautiful, moving timepiece that also as an adult seems like re- just really interesting to look back on considering like the garbage fire of the world right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might have been in this piece or was I read a bunch today where someone had described it as like a movie 
version of a mixtape for a lot of kids. Like, oh, yeah. You know, like I didn't experience punk in an authentic way. Like yeah. I wasn't like my first exposure to those things wasn't like me hanging out in a squat. You know, I was living in Cornish, Maine, and I just anything I saw in movies that was a little different, I was like, oh, it's good to know that's out there. Like, it's good to know that's out there. And that's how I'm not going to say the majority of people. I don't know what the percentage is, but like, that's how a lot of people I know experience subversive things was through not subversive means. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like there was one kid who had an older brother who was kind of punk and was a skateboarder and like, right. but this was the first time I ever heard of the Descendants, the butthole service. And he mentions everyone by name. Yeah. Too, yeah. Which was important because like you didn't have supporting documentation. He was like, no. this is the Beastie Boys. Like this is Henry Rollins or you saw the names and stuff on things like that must have been, that was like extraordinarily important for kids who didn't have the internet. Yeah, you had to be a detective. This is what Almost Famous was like for parentified children. Tell me more about that, Sarah. Because Almost Famous was great for the parentified tween because you got to like identify with your 60s parent and mm. also got to learn all these songs by like seeing the artist being introduced in some way. You know what this movie made me appreciate in a really big way is this thing I think about maybe like once a year is how brilliant Family Ties was. So mm. brilliant. This movie does the thing Kurt Cobain would do in public for a couple years after this, which is not surprising because this movie is very much like influenced by Over the Edge. Mm. It's like very punky. It's saying a lot of the things that like Kurt Cobain was like already saying, just like not to, uh, you know, with like Geffen's distribution is this movie was like, why are you talking about the 60s? This is where it landed us. Mm. Right down to like, there's the part at the beginning of Territorial Pissings where it starts with singing off key, smile on your brother, everybody get together. It's like, just like this whole, why are we obsessing over the 60s if this is where it landed us? Mm -hmm. And just to think that like family ties subverted that model and was like, what if, what if instead of authoritarians, the parents were still hippies and their kid became a fascist? <laughs> but was still lovable somehow. Like, that's hilarious. Well, because he's Michael J. Fox. He's, he's, the, he's the lovablest fascist. A cute little Reaganite. Cute as a button fascist. Sarah, was this the first time you saw this movie? Yes. Oh, my God. It sure was. How do you feel it held up as someone who's looking in on it for the first time? It held up amazingly, in my opinion, because, like, the whole central thing of this movie... I keep saying movies that this reminds me of, but I guess like it's united in a pantheon of great teen movies for me. And another one of them is Rock and Roll High School. Yeah. And like the the premise of that movie, the premise of this movie, the premise of Radio Rebel, the premise of like so many great teen movies is like the teens start communicating basically or like having ideas or rocking the boat, to use a phrase in this film, in any kind of a way, no matter how trivial and the adults freak out and they're like, the teens are having ideas. It's terrible. And they're listening to the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> what will they do if they start comparing notes? Yeah. What will they do if they start comparing salaries? Because when I was a teenager, I was a, a tween in the late 90s and... I mean, I still do this with my mom, so it hasn't gone away. But I remember like in high school calling friends to be like, turn on the radio right now. This thing is happening. And that's something that I assume is much less common than it was then. And I feel like this movie is a pretty good demonstration of like what the radio is or can be like or has the capacity to be, which is like part of the power is that people are all hearing the same thing at once and therefore can be driven to make a disturbance. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's really what last summer was, you know, like a lot of different things were happening last spring and summer, but a significant amount of the protests were driven to some extent by the energy of teenagers, adolescents, young people who are essential to noticing injustice in a society mm -hmm. and also to having the unique energy to help create the kind of front that acts upon it. Mm. I got so choked up at that last scene mm -hmm. and I was surprised at how emotional it still made me. I think like any big, mm -hmm. those scenes of, um, of the underdog in the moment of uprising, like it was still... It was just beautifully yeah. shot. And I also loved that it was clear that they spent their entire budget, production budget on that helicopter. 
I was similarly surprised by how how moved when like Christian Slater's and Samantha Mathis's face are like kind of in slow motion when they get caught for some mm. reason that's like in my soul like <laughs> I don't know why that is I mean it's basically like the suburban talk radio teen version of Bonnie and Clyde like that's yes. their shootout at the end also raising Arizona Raising Arizona, that's great. Yeah. yeah. I like to think that the chase in Raising Arizona ran through the home of one of the kids at this high school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, can we talk about why is Christian Slater being hunted down by the FCC? Because I think the framing of his dangerousness is interesting. Like, Zoe, what's happening? Why is he such an outlaw? So he's such an outlaw because he has an understanding of what's happening at the school in terms of the principal, you know, selectively weeding kids out for being troublemakers. Mm-hmm. He's also just unafraid to say things that I think are shocking in this kind of bedroom community. Like one of the f- first the scenes we see of him on the radio is him crank calling the guidance counselor. He like snoops through his dad's papers and finds out that they've kicked a teen girl out who's pregnant just because she's pregnant. And so he sort of like is a bit of a renegade in this way in terms of calling out the bullshit of what the authorities are doing at this particular school. I think because he's feeling personally alienated from everyone and from his friends and he's lonely, it's sort of like this way of of connecting and so the FCC are hunting him down because it's broadcasted over state lines. He's in, it's a federal jurisdiction and he's, you know, saying all these things that you can't say on the radio, which from today's point of view seemed all a little bit tame. But in the moment, I don't know, it felt really meaningful at the time. How else could teens communicate immediately at the time? Like, I feel like social media is stigmatized for a lot of reasons and some of them are legitimate and some of them are silly. And I feel like one of the big stigmatizing factors in the past has been that it allows teenagers to communicate with each other at a large scale across geography and in real time. And like that historically leads to them becoming empowered. It also leads to them like having having sex, (laughs) having sex and also having prank wars and just like being annoying. But it also leads to sex and revolution, which are, are good things. The worst thing that teens do on social media, I think maybe that we maybe all agree on is sometimes bully each other into killing themselves, Mm -hmm. which like what this movie is pointing out is like school does that first and families. Yeah, right. School and family does that first. And we don't listen to teens when they say that that's what's happening. Yeah, except Ellen Green. She listens, but then she got fired for listening. The thing that this and that like oeuvre of the suburbs are weird and it cooks kids brains movies are doing is that it's like yes like kids can kill each other and actually like it turns out at this high school that this movie took place and there was a school shooting eventually because on a long enough timeline it seems like every school is under some sort of threat with how many guns and angst and existentialism and nihilism there is mainly the guns because in france they just all smoke galoises Yes. You know, the points that they're all ultimately making in one way or another is like the first and primary killer (laughs) is the conditions of upbringing and like the conditions of of alienation that are hoisted upon children by these institutions. The most wholesome version of this I can think of is E.T., where it's Mm. like, oh, yeah, your life is going to be depressing unless an alien shows up in your yard (laughs) and the feds are going to come anyway. (laughs) I mean, the Stepford Wives is another sinisterness of suburbia movie like that. There's this whole subgenre of movies that's like, we all hate this, right? We do, right? It's terrible. And yet we continue to do it and we're still building them. Adults hate teenagers. If you're a teenager and you feel like adults hate you and they say they don't, I don't mean individually, but like as a society, they're lying, they're gaslighting you, they do hate you. And all of the reasons are illegitimate. And I think one of them is that like, as you get older, you start to feel your life and your options narrow and you resent the person that you were who didn't have more sex or go to architect school or not go to (laughs) architect school or whatever it is. And then I think that something happens with adults based on what I sort of can taste of the like horrible broth brewing inside of my soul right now (laughs) (laughs) is like that we resent adolescence because we see our younger self who like didn't carpe the right DMs. And it's like, this is not a like carpe the DM talk because you just can't 
sees everything. You make the choices you make, you do your best. And like, as an adult, you have to do your younger self the service of not resenting yourself for that because you did your best and you were like a wonderful, trying hard, younger person. But I think that we resent our teen selves and therefore teenagers when we're not at peace with that because we're like, you have everything, you have it all, you can do anything, you have the potential to not make my mistakes, even though we're all at a certain point sitting around having to choose between being eternally resentful or just like accepting that we focused on what we focused on and went to grad school for like all of our 20s for some reason, Sarah. I mean, there's someone who I've talked about on Twitter and someone who I talk about sometimes in the show here and there, not not in an identifying way, but a friend that I have mm-hmm. who's a bit younger than I am, who fucks up a lot, who I mean to, and I'm trying to be less mean to this person. Mm. It's not me, is it? It's not you at all. No, no, no. And I've I've realized over time that like part of the reasons why like my impulse is to be mean is because I'm being mean to me. <gasps> I'm like, see this person making very similar mistakes to ones that I have. And you're like, don't paddle your canoe over those rapids for the love of God, you idiot. Just... And because you're like, look at these scars I have from those sharp rocks and those rapids. Totally. I realize that when I'm reverting to being meaner to this person, it's like me lashing out at myself. Mm -hmm. And it happens at two levels too, right? Because it's like, there's just like structural resentment where it's like, I didn't land in the place that I thought I was going to land in. And I landed in this place. I'm still dealing with that. And you take it out on younger people in one way or another. And the other is just like, we all are dealing with the fact that we know we're going to (laughs) die. Totally. <laughs> oh, yeah. There, well, that too. That's a huge and one. And they represent a further place from that than we do. <laughs> I know. Because, yeah, I was thinking about this, about how, like, the romance of youth, part of it is just, like, horrible things can and, and will happen to young people, and it's awful. But, like, by the numbers, you just live, like, really far away from death. Part of this, I guess, like, I've only practically been in my 30s under a pandemic. So for me, they're like the same experience. So maybe not everyone crosses into their early 30s and thinks about death all the time. But I do. And I feel like even now I'm like, wow, it's like death is an airport. And I live in a neighborhood closer to that airport. And it's loud (laughs) during my cookouts. (laughs) (laughs) When I find myself getting snippy at younger people, it's it's almost like I think that part of me misses feeling right all the time. Oh, my God, I know. <laughs> right. Like you get old, you look away for five minutes. You're like, what do we say now? Where? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so so back to what, what is magical about Christian Slater? For me, this movie, being 14, seeing this movie, I don't know why I didn't realize it, but later on when I was older and I came out as bi, I was like, oh, that movie was my route. Like, those are the sm- two mm. smoking leads who have such chemistry together, who are both kind of queerish, subversive in a way. Like They're like vaguely mm. androgynous in specific ways. Yeah. And also their gender roles in those, like him being shy and her being assertive. And like, it was just mm-hmm. completely different than anything I'd seen in a teen movie before in terms of their dynamic and their attraction. You know, she she wasn't his muse and he wasn't this like big egoist. Like She's the Romeo. She actually literally shows up in his garden. Yeah. They're both like really interesting thinkers and unique kids. And like, yeah. So for me, Christian Slater was like, he was the one of the boys I had up on the teen beat collage on my wall because of those two pivotal roles, I think, because of Heather's and... And this movie, especially. I like how he talks like Jack Nicholson. Apparently he was obsessed with him. Like rightfully so. Like how weird is it that like a teen heartthrob from the 80s, he looks like Jack Nicholson in Little Shop of Horrors. (laughs) How interesting is it that he like approached the role this way, that he was like, I'm going to play him like Jack Nicholson. I feel like I read this in some background pieces that he like kind of insisted on using that tone and that kind of bravado. And it works. Like you wouldn't think that a teenager playing Jack Nicholson would then become this like iconic rebel of that era. And yes, it's perfect. And yet here we are. Well, the fascinating thing is that he plays it, but it is Jekyll and Hyde, right? Like that he plays Jack Nicholson when he's on the radio, but he also plays like 
sort of effeminate, very inward nerd who reads Lenny Bruce books that the school has at the library. <laughs> Love that moment. I know. I know. The school can't be that oppressive if they have a right? book by Lenny Bruce <laughs> in their library. And she's like, is he cool? And it's like, yeah, it's Lenny Bruce. Fucking <laughs> Lenny Bruce. To, like, I was exactly the kind of teenage girl who like, wanted to meet a boy who'd be like, let me tell you about Lenny Bruce. And now I'm like, oh my God, that would be awful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. And the cool thing about him though, is he gets the book out and she asks the question. And isn't that a great opportunity for him to become the meme of the guy who's just yelling in a woman's ear while she's just like drinking idly with, with, with (laughs) like white eyes. And he does not. He's just like, yeah, he's cool. And he's like, I can't tell you about Lenny Bruce. (laughs) This makes me think about just the paradigm of the 4chan guy and the incel. Even the mass shooter and the incel archetypes have been linked kind of in the public mind. Like we think of those two guys kind of often as the same guy. Mm -hmm. And many times they have been. And one of the things I find so interesting about the whole 4chan incel guy type ethos is based on this idea of like, we're beta males. Girls don't want to have sex with us. Therefore, let's kill everyone and be Nazis or whatever. And I bet a lot of you could have sex with girls. I bet there are girls who would have sex with a lot of you. And you're just not pursuing that because it's like you're using that as like a metaphor for how the world feels inhospitable Mm. and awful, which it is like it's going to exploit your labor and everyone's trying to scam everybody all day long. And you're choosing to join forces with that to some extent, to identify yourself with that. But I feel like it's like using as an excuse this idea of a like sex scarcity. And it's like there's an everything else scarcity. Yeah. (laughs) Alex, what do you think? The thing that I feel saved by, by not having become one of those guys Mm -hmm. in one way or another. Which is partly based on the fact that your parents at some point in 1982 were like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) the the thing that i feel is like scary and rachel monroe and savage appetites wrote about this really well in in, and one of the stories there Mm -hmm. so school shootings started to happen in my consciousness like in a big and accelerating big way like when i was like 13 or 14 Mm -hmm. and then they started to take off and become like almost like a lifestyle or fetish like in the in the early 2000s or mid 2000s until like when tumblr started to take off Mm. and then four was obviously a part as well but the thing that i feel saves mark slash harry is there isn't a hundred more of him tapped into the addictive Mm. technology of the internet just feeding off of each other for 15 to 20 hours of day while they're awake the thing that I had as an advantage, even though I was like a relatively early adopter to be online next to like a lot of my a lot of my peers, is I had other time to do stuff. Yeah. I don't envy any person, and this isn't necessarily an excuse, but like I don't envy any person who came up in a reality in which they were just online all the time. Cause I don't see how you don't exit that situation very likely to have your brains cooked out of your fucking head. Right. And Mark did other stuff. Like Mark was only the DJ for for a half hour to an hour a night. I know. And then he lived the rest of his life. People now are Mark as Harry their entire day. All yeah. the time. Oh God, yeah. But like there's the whole other thing too that cooks the brain of the parasocial relationship that like Mark mm-hmm. freaks him out rightfully. Like I would say it does to anyone else who's on the receiving end of parasocial relationships is every time Mark sees a symbol or a sign of the fact that there are admirers, he's fucking weirded out because it's a weird thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I also found quaint looking back as an adult while watching this movie is that he's able to express his loneliness and alienation and his need for connection without the intensity of the the reality of the school shootings and the incel culture and the internet culture. And like, which I think as a viewer, as a 45 year old reading, watching it now makes it seem almost innocent in a way. Like there's something sort mm. of as a 14 year old, I was like, this is so controversial and punk rock and 
radical. And, and now looking back, given what I know teenagers deal with these days, it seems almost adorable in some ways. I don't know. I don't mean to, I think I still felt moved by it and it doesn't feel like it lacks in meaning, but it, it aged so uniquely in that way. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I feel like something I was thinking of while watching this is how I'm often like, you know, the nineties were kind of a time of innocence in America. And I've Notice people who were teens at the time, especially being like, well, I didn't feel that way. And I feel like, yeah, like the teens always know, like teenagers always know that like things are hypocritical and weird because like they're being surveilled and they're bearing the weight of adult expectations. And they're the ones who like having the social conditioning sort of pressed into them as something they're encountering maybe for the first time are like perhaps most able as people who haven't bought in so much yet to be like, wait a minute, that's what? No. Yeah. No, thank you. Like in 1990, when this movie came out, like, I do feel like there was this sense that the younger and less bought into the way things were going, a viewpoint that existed, that was like, yeah, things are like looking and feeling pretty good now. But it's like, this is weird, right? Like we're balancing <laughs> on an ice cube, aren't we? And the ice cube is on a griddle. Is that right? right? That seems to be happening. And it's just that now the ice cube has melted and we're like, wow, it's hot. And I think the reality is, it's like, you know, I, I was 14 in 1990 and I remember feeling like all of my childhood was about nuclear war and how we were all going to die yeah. imminently. And then 1990, 1991 was all about how the ozone layer was going to... And you can't use hairspray suddenly, right? It's like, no more hairspray. We ruin the ozone layer. Exactly. And then the Gulf War. Things feel legitimately apocalyptic right now in a way that they haven't felt in my lifetime. But at the time, as a teenager, I also felt like the world might end before I was 21. So I think that's also the context of what was happening when this movie was made. But there were some like story choices that the writer made that made it seem specific and particular to this kind of suburban malaise mm -hmm. that I think was like very emotionally resonant in a suburb at the time, which I which I was. Yeah. What we see in this movie is like the things that you see that are supposed to make it impossible to complain. Mm. And this idea that like trouble is happening, but someplace far away. And the parents are always watching TV, which is another thing that's similar to Repo Man. You come and your parents are just glued to the TV. That contrast makes it so that it's almost like you're questioning the prosperity that your country appears to be enjoying right now if you complain about anything happening in the country. Because look at that country over there. That country is sure having a hard time. Like, I find it so kind of deserved, honestly, to think about how I feel like we're still doing better than so many other places, partly because of our actions. But still, the United States right now, I feel like is like one of those countries that I remember, at, like in middle school, like hearing about on the news when I was helping my mom with dinner. And you're like, wow, that sounds terrible. Well, anyway, yeah, <laughs> let's watch Washington Week. <laughs> I mean, I guess there's like two struggles, right? Like there's the structural struggle that's being suggested. There's the, I mean, there's the cultural struggle living in this place. There's the structural struggle where like these kids who are not earning the right scores for the schools are getting kicked out. And mm -hmm. so there's like an, there's an actual, you know, there's this like actual adversary in their lives, but then also just like free speech for a movie that's like, fuck the sixties. This movie has a very early to mid sixties, like free speech at all costs message, mm. which Right now, it's like very hilariously different where who knows where things are going. But right now, the issue isn't like you're not allowed to say things. You're actually like allowed to say pretty much mm -hmm. anything. Mm. It's how people are interpreting like which freedoms are under attack and like which freedoms are prioritized. I but honestly think we're allowed to say too many things. <laughs> like I didn't know that people were allowed to say Jews will not replace us. Mm in a parade. The constitutional protections for hate speech are their own whole thing. But I guess I think that like too many people want to say things, <laughs> right? Like you can say anything, but why do you want to? Why would you say that? <laughs> it's interestingly quaint that what happens in this movie is a person who is like a radical fr free speech advocate who uses that platform to make a gay kid feel okay. 
Yes. Like, that's why this feels anachronistic. Uh, totally. In one way or another. It's like, now that people are yelling about free speech, don't care about this kid in that movie. I think today, like, that kid would go viral and then get doxxed and then get swatted. Right. I'm so curious about how this moment came to be because it has to be one of the earliest instances of, like, a character talking about gay bashing and, like, being a victim of a hate crime because he's gay in a movie for teenagers. They lost funding, <laughs> right? Like, we tried to make make it with a production oh, yeah? company, and the production company said, if you don't change the gay stuff, we're going to pull out. And he's... says, You know, the person who saved them when that funding thing happened was Michael Stipe. Right! <laughs> right! I forgot about that. I love Michael Stipe. That's so great. But Kristen Slater as a father in this movie, he kind of sucks. At the end, he kind of gets better. But who is the daddy in this movie? I think Samantha Mathis. Yes, right to it. (laughs) She takes care of everything and she's quite confident. And she drives the Jeep around while you blast your revolutionary radio show. She looks out for him. She gives him good advice. She has lots of posters. She fucks. I've said it before, but that's just a rare thing to it see. <laughs> She's the cool art girl archetype that I love in a teen movie. She reminds me a lot of Allie Larder's character in Final Destination. Wow. Right? I would say um, runner-up, I totally agree, Samantha Mathis. Runner-up daddies are Leonard Cohen yes, thank and you. the lizard. <laughs> This is just like a character we haven't had the opportunity to talk about is I love the like wasp girl who puts everything in the um, microwave and blows everything up. Oh, yeah, I love her, too. It doesn't make her a daddy. But like that speaks to the thing you were talking about, Sarah, where it's like once everyone has kind of deconstructed their barriers Mm -hmm. and they like realize that they're all freaks for Harry, they're able to actually like start talking and comparing notes. And I love that so much. But I would say Ellen Green in this, Mm -hmm. even though she doesn't get a ton of attention, like she's that cool teacher who is really meaningful to all of us. And we don't fully know it until 20 years later. Yeah, absolutely. She's great. Zoe, remind us of uh, how people can support you this month. Well, um, people can buy my new book called The Spectacular out on September 14th. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for bringing us this movie. I'm so glad we got to do it with you. I was so happy to be here. Talk hard. Talk hard. The truth is a virus. All right, everybody, thank you so, so much for listening to this episode of You Are Good. It's just splendid to have you. Thank you to Zoe, of course, for coming on the show, talking about this movie. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick, who produces each of our episodes, makes them sound great. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for producing the beats that show up on this show. Thank you to you for supporting via Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Find us on social media, Twitter and Instagram at you are good pod. I think that's it for now. Next week, we will talk about Thor Ragnarok. It's going to be fun. That's a fun movie. It's got so much Jeff Goldblum in it. All right. We'll talk to you all soon.